Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. TGIF, if you're listening to this on a Friday, TGI, whatever day it is, um, whenever you get to this episode. Hi, this is Everything's Relative Podcast, and I am Eve Sturgis, here to talk about modern DNA testing and the wild surprises that people are experiencing everywhere, because testing is widely available and communication is easier than ever, or I should say the technology of communication is easier than ever. Family secrets are coming out of the woodwork or coming out of the trend or coming out of the, help me out with this joke. Family secrets are coming out of the saliva. (laughs) I'm going to work on that one. If you've never been here before, welcome. Uh, So, hey, you may be surprised to learn that these kind of revelations are happening all the time. The most common shock that people experience is that of the NPE. That is a term from genealogy that means non-paternal event or non-parental experience. It's getting kind of taken over by this growing community of people. We call ourselves NPEs um, or like I am an NPE or um, you have an NPE. It means that you discover that as an adult that one or more of your parents are not your biological parent. Usually this means that your dad is not your father, biological father, Um, but that's actually not the only way that it happens. People find out they were adopted, but no one told them, so also their mother is not biologically related to them. Um, and, And there are even stranger things, like babies were switched at birth or given to friends or relatives to be raised. Believe me, if you try and think of every variation on this theme, you will still not think of all the ways that an NPE can happen. Trust me. So I'm here to talk about it. So, okay. Uh, Y'all, last episode, episode 11 with Edward DeGange, um, I mentioned that I was headed to the East Coast for a retreat just for NPEs. So I did it. It was amazing. Uh, Hireth Hope and Healing is really onto something with getting us together and providing space and forums for learning about being an NPE bonding about being an MPE or the NPE experience, um, for laughing, for crying about it. It was, uh, I am still so impressed. If you are interested in learning more, um, I think what you should do is head over to the Facebook group called NPE Only after the discovery. It's one of the many support groups out there that's mobilizing to provide support. Um, and they, they do other things other than their treats. They also have calls like Zoom calls um, and tons of different uh, like groups for different types of people involved and affected by the MPE phenomenon. So um, they are good people over there. And uh, I want to talk about it. I could talk, I could do a whole episode about what I experienced there and um, what I laughed about and what we cried about and how much fun it was. Um, 
let's just say that I got so much more than I bargained for. Uh, and these East Coast kids were authentic in a way that was really fun and really inspirational. Um, I don't, yeah, like I'm not trying to make a commercial for them, but I also want everyone to know about all the things that are available to them. Which brings me to this week's episode. Um, it is about another resource that's available. It's um, another awesome book. So I didn't even realize I was doing so many episodes in a row of books and their authors. Uh, I'm not organized enough to plan these things, and I'm not sure that I could be that organized if I wanted to be. So anyway, I guess I just want to like warn any new listeners, in case they think that this is always about me talking with people that write books, that is not the case. It's just um, just sort of how it happened this time. Um, we're just really on a book roll over here. Um, but anyway, so... Back to the point, this is a book called The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, which couldn't be a better description of this phenomenon, really. Um, the DNA testing is upending who we are. And you can't imagine my surprise when Libby Copeland and I uh, connected on Facebook and she agreed to do an episode with me. Um, I didn't even imagine she had a Facebook <laughs> or that she would have heard of my Rinky Dink podcast. Um, but guys, Libby Copeland, she's just like us. I've talked, uh, yeah. So, okay. So I've talked long enough and she says, uh, more interesting things than me. So I will just roll this tape. Enjoy my conversation with Libby Copeland, author of The Lost Family. This is episode 12 of season two of Everything's Relative podcast. And I am Eve Sturgis. Hi, uh, Libby Hi. Copeland. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. It's so exciting Good. to talk to you. Oh gosh. Well, I um, like I emailed you this a little bit, but I um, I sort of can't believe we're talking. I didn't um, like I'll try to to reel in my like starstruck dumbness, but I, um, oh my goodness, it just didn't. It didn't like occur to me. I could. It, it just felt well. It just felt like. Um, I just didn't even occur to me that I could just contact you and ask you if you could be on my podcast. Totally. Um, yeah. I was like hoping you would. I was like, oh, I know Eve Sturgis. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, it is, um, it's very exciting for me, but I, I will try and stay focused because we have a limited amount of time. Um, so, so you're here because you wrote a book uh, that came out earlier this year called The Lost Family. How DNA testing is upending who we are. And I can say that within the NPE communities and the people that I talk with, this book is hot. It is on fire. Everyone is talking about it. Everybody is reading it. Um, and I'm so glad to hear you say that. That's really, that's really such an honor. Thank you. Um, and I think, you know, I was rereading it um, last night and to to sort of just like refresh my brain before we talked. And one thing that really occurred to me is the feeling when I'm reading it, it's, um, I think that there is something for every kind of person 
in this book in that, or, or I say every kind of person, but what I mean is there's maybe two kinds of people and there's the people that are into history and science and there's people that are into stories and mm-hmm. you do this like excellent way of weaving those things together. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly a story person. I, mm-hmm. it, you know, I would happily write an entire book with just people's stories, but you know, I kind of felt like, well, this is a really important moment in, you know, in not just in cultural terms, which is the most interesting piece of it to me, but like in scientific terms, in business terms, right? Um, in sort of sociological terms. And so I wanted to broaden out because I felt like if um, if we could all see the heft of this moment, right, the way it's changing mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. lives and like the greater importance along all these sort of different avenues, then if then we could really start an important cultural conversation and we could, um, you know, just grapple with something that I think we've never, we've never grappled with before, right? And that is right. um, this question of how much the past is entitled to shape us, this question of, of you know, who would we have been if we had only known the truth about our genetic origins? What are people um, sort of obligated to do for one another? Um, You know, just all these things that I think people are really wrestling with right now that are really, really important that we talk about. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like so many of those questions you just asked were the things that I underlined throughout. We're just, Mm -hmm. um, see if I could, you know, um, uh, uh, I like, I, of course, like I'm now I'm finding like a hundred, but, um, you know, it is a strange thing to look in the mirror and at the face you've grown old with and find you don't quite recognize it. Um, and you just have so many things that, that just hit, like hit, hit the nail on the head or just capture all the different, um, facets of this experience so well. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I, yeah. So, well, no, thank you. Uh, I am wondering how this book came to be. What, um, what, how did you, how did, how, I guess I'll just repeat the question. How did this book come to be? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've been a reporter for um, like over 20 years and the stories I was always drawn to were the, like the intimate lives of, of people who, um, you know, who weren't, who weren't famous, um, but were, you know, really, really interesting and compelling. So those were always the stories I like to tell were sort of the, the, um, the, you know, intimate lives of people who, um, had something to teach other people. Uh, and then over the last few years, I had become increasingly engaged in science writing. Um, and then I was talking to my editor at the Washington Post and, she proposed that we write about DNA testing and its unintended consequences. And I started, this was a few years ago, I started becoming interested in this idea of it, like a technology that people were thinking of engaging with for one reason, right? As a form mm-hmm. of entertainment could be this sort of profound life-changing experience, right? And, and how does technology kind of shape our lives, um, particularly when we don't go out asking for it to do so? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then how do we grapple with something that we didn't ask to find but that's in many cases we are grateful to find. Right. Um, and so, and, 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 and why are people grateful to find, right? Like what, like all the, all the, right. and then how did the people on the other side respond and, and, you know, and, and how can their responses be so sometimes 180 degrees different than 
than the people who are seeking connection. So, it, it, you know, there's this opportunity for all these really interesting stories um, to come out of this topic. So I wrote one story for the Washington Post mm -hmm. and it got a lot of pickup. And then I got like literally hundreds of emails. This was in early 2017 from people who'd read the article and were like, well, that story was great, but let me tell you about what happened to me. And I was very quickly, yeah. And, and I was very quickly like underwater with it. Like I couldn't even mm -hmm. read them all and, and reply. Like there were so, so many emails and they were so detailed and they were so moving because, mm -hmm. you know, they were from people who like were searching for something. And in some cases were meeting only with like rejection uh, and they didn't, they didn't know how to handle it. And and then other cases where they were like really beautiful, like reunions and coming together. And it just seemed like, it seemed like these stories were actually shining a light, not just at this moment, but like sort of on, on the human condition, right? And like, why do, why do people behave the way they behave? Like why, where are they open arms sometimes? And why are they closed off? And, and I was so interested in that. And then, so what I did was I started like emailing back to people would emailed me and sometimes getting on the phone with them and they would tell me their stories. And sometimes like these stories were so moving that I would actually find myself crying, which is not something like I normally do as a reporter, but you know, I would talk to them over hours and then I would talk to them again and again. And it was like, wow, like this is like, like I'm imagining myself in your place. And this is, this is really something else. Uh, and you know, you yeah. So guys, the stories are sort of accidentally intimate. Um, yeah, they're so intimate. They're so mm -hmm. intimate because when you're talking about something that happened to you at the age of 60, you're also talking about what happened to you at the age of six, right? Because right. over and over, there was a woman who said to me, she discovered at the age of 51 that she was adopted. And then she started to reach out to her, not a kin. And she was like, and they were rejecting for the most part of her mm -hmm. um, because she was made the messenger of her own existence, which is a terrible place to be, right? You've been kept a secret. And now you're being asked to not only introduce yourself, but announce that you exist. And um, that is very inconvenient for those right. people. And they would rather reject you as a stranger than invite you in as a relation. Right. So she said, right, don't change the narrative, right? And, and this is very, um, yeah, this is very ill-timed for us, right? We would rather not believe this. And so, uh, you know, she told me, you know, when, when, when you meet with rejection, she said, you are not 51 years old, you are six years old. And there's a little mm -hmm. child inside of me that um, feels so incredibly hurt, like just wanted to be embraced, just wanted to be loved. And instead, you know, I'm being kicked to the curb. And she, she was in so much pain over it. Um, mm -hmm. And she was one of the people when I spoke with her that I just found myself moved to tears. Um, so I wanted to tell all those stories. I wanted to tell them, you know, in their sometimes in their 360 nature, like when it was possible to interview the people on the mm -hmm. other side, and then also to like follow people over the course of a long time so that so that I could see how their stories developed. Because I think, I think when your entire life narrative is upended, it's not something that you quickly process and move to a new place on and then you're good. It's like actually months and months and years and maybe mm -hmm. the rest of your life, depending, mm -hmm. right? Because you're not just rewriting your story in the now, you're rewriting your story from its very beginnings. And when you, when you, when you rewrite your once upon a time, the whole rest of the story changes. Yeah. The ripple effect um, just goes and goes. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's yeah. Yep. 
I agree with you. <laughs> um, everything, everything becomes different, right? Like everything is right, like something yeah. you pick up and go, wait, in light of this new information, now this fact about myself has changed. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All the facts. Yeah. All the facts, memories come, come up that you didn't know mm-hmm. were even in there. And um, yeah, waking so, up in the middle of the night, remembering something that happened when you were yeah, 10 and some weird right. comment your mom made that suddenly makes sense. Right. Somebody, somebody mumbled something under their breath at one point. Right. And you didn't even know you remembered it. And suddenly Mm -hmm. you're remembering it. It's like your subconscious is like bringing it up. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that you had such an amazing experience exploring all these different elements, like so many different stories and every story is different. And yet there's these threads that are the same. Right. Yeah. I mean, the language, there were, there were a lot of like threads that I find commonalities, like, and one of them is what you're talking about, right? Suddenly you're remembering old memories. It's like you're annotating your, you're annotating your, your childhood. You're like putting little footnotes next to everything. (laughs) And you're like, wait, this is different in light of this. Um, And then uh, there were commonalities of language that were very interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Commonalities of descriptions that I would get from multiple people and they had not talked to one another beforehand, but they were using the same words to describe the experience. Right. Right. Gosh, which just speaks to so much to this, to this need, not even need, but this connection that exists, whether we need it or want it Mm -hmm. or not. Um, And speaks to to this exploration of of people wanting or needing to know their histories and is because we're all people just connection exists whether through things like that that Mm -hmm. that you know speak to things we can't quite understand um the collective what was the biggest surprise when you wrote this book while you were writing this book or researching this book yeah that's a good question the biggest surprise um you know i i guess I don't know if there's one way to answer that. I mean, I, I, I found that I found those, those commonalities incredible. Right. And I did not see that coming. Like this description of, um, I had a hole in my heart and now it's filled. Well, that I would Mm -hmm. hear over and over again for people who had, um, had been welcomed into a genetic family, this idea of a hole. Um, Mm -hmm. Another surprise was like this idea, the description that I hear over and over again of a sense of rootedness, like first a sense of displacement and then a sense of rootedness. Like when you realize you don't know what you thought you knew or for adopted persons, they would talk about not not knowing and that being experienced as a sense of like disorientation. Uh, And then when you know you're putting down roots. Uh, And Krista Driver, the psychologist you had on your program, Mm -hmm. who was so great. Um, and she, I would interview her for my book and she was great then. And she was great when you interviewed her. She said, um, she talked about this idea of like anxiety at the loss of identity. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I would say that that was like the biggest surprise in writing the book, but that was like my baby, maybe my biggest kind of learning process in, and kind of my biggest takeaway and kind of trying to wrestle with how big of a deal this is that, Mm -hmm. You know, and I think there's a tendency for people who haven't been through this to say, like, what's the big deal? The guy who raised you is your dad. Or what's the big deal that you're half, um, 
Greek and you didn't know it, right? Like you're Mm -hmm. still, you know, you still have the experiences of having been raised, whatever you were raised. So like, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a big deal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like there's a, there's a, there's a woman in my book um, who's actually the sister of the protagonist. So her name is Jerry. And like, I tell her family's story in the book and like, they're just an incredible kind of existential whodunit. You follow the narrative through the book. Mm-hmm. And Jerry says towards the end, she, you know, they discovered that they're half Jewish, half uh, genetically mm-hmm. Jewish. And she said, one of her relatives said to her, like, what, what's the big deal? You're still Irish. Like this doesn't have anything to do with you. Does it? And she said, Oh, but it has everything to do with me. Right. And, and I think if you haven't been through this experience, you can't really maybe conceive of what a big deal it is to, um, you know, to your understanding of your relationships with your parents, to your understanding of your relationships with your half siblings, maybe if they've suddenly become half siblings, mm-hmm. um, to the fact that you have like a now another biological family out there. Um, or, you know, in Jerry and Alice's case, it's a different scenario because they're not, this is not an NPE experience, but for a lot of the people that I interviewed, it is, um, and and I just think your orientation on the world is is vastly changed. Yeah, I, I um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't mean to be so like uh, dumbfounded, but yeah, you know, you're explaining it so well. Um, yeah, and I think that it. I think this is just because part of it is that it's a new experience for us culturally. But there is right. something to be said about how much people do not anticipate how the change will feel or how the discovery will feel. Right. Um, and there's, cause there's no precedent. And, right. Um, and, and it's not only that there's no precedent, but it's, um, it's such a, like, I don't want to say it's unfathomable, but it's because it's, it's an unfathomable idea, but it's not unfathomable as far as, um, like British murder mysteries have it all the time. <laughs> um, you know, have uh, like, inheritance being a, a part of the discussion or, but, but it's really about secret parentage and stuff. And, and so it's like, we talk about it very casually, like very flippantly mm-hmm. in pop culture, it comes up. Um, so it's like, we're familiar with the idea, but we had no idea that it was so, um, so big or so, so can be so serious. Right. And I think like, you know, even though the DNA testing companies give you these little um, kind of warnings um, or sort of, you know, notifications that you may discover something about your family that you didn't expect, or you may discover unexpected relatives, they'll say. Um, In my interviews, like, generally speaking, people didn't anticipate that the statistics would apply to them. And I think, you know, that makes sense, because it's like, it's such an inconceivable thing. Right. So why would you assume that kind of cognitive dissonance? Like, why would you assume that everything you thought you knew is not right? Uh, it, it would be like a weird thing to assume. And then you see mm-hmm. on the back end, once they make these discoveries, there's often a sense of denial at first, because that's how strong the cognitive dissonance is. So then they call 23andMe's customer service line or any ancestry. And they're like, why is it saying this woman is my half sister? I don't have a sister. Right. And then the customer service line people have to kind of explain to them, you know, why it's showing that finding. Like maybe they don't know their full family history. It could be because of all of these various reasons. So I don't think, you know, most the vast majority of people have an expectation that they're going into this, even if they they know in theory that there could be a statistical possibility. 
Right. Um, well, yeah. And I actually, one of the things I marked was um, because especially when I first started the podcast and started interviewing people, there was um, still, I, still a lot of talk. I mean, I just hasn't come up lately, but I'm, I'm sure there's still a lot of talk out there, but people wanted to talk about feeling sort of resentful about not being warned enough um, mm. or different ideas that they had for a way to to emphasize to people the importance of the of that probability. Um, but you wrote, the problem of incidental findings is an important one in the context of both scientific research and recreational testing. If you can't anticipate what you might find out, how can you make an educated decision about what news you'll want to hear? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, to me, that, that really resonated with me. And, um, and uh, because, and I also feel like so many people like MPEs get the question, like, do you wish you'd never found out? Mm-hmm. Um, and, or do you wish it had gone differently? And, and that to me feels like such an impossible question. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because once of the you way- know it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in the science, in the medical setting, we have, we have gatekeepers and we have sort of bioethicists offering guidance to, say genetic counselors or genetic counselors have a code of ethics or doctors, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they, ha- and they're wrestling with, you know, the question of like, what do you inform the, um, the individual if they take a test and they discover something that isn't exactly what we tested for, but something else that might concern their health. Right. That's the question. That's sort of like what's known as incidental findings in a medical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no, there are no gatekeepers in the context of recreational DNA testing. And I'm not saying that that's bad or good because you know, you see it, you see it go both ways. You see people who are, you know, adopted and very much looking for their birth families. And this Mm -hmm. is their means of finding out that information. Um, And so it can be very empowering. And, 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 you know, the majority of people who I interviewed who discovered something surprising about their genetic origins told me, like, I don't wish to unknow this information, even when it's painful, even when it's complicated, even when it introduces all sorts of conversations, I wish I hadn't, had to have or had gone differently, like, I'm still glad to know, right? Like, we place such a premium on understanding the truth around how we came to be that, you know, of course, I'm glad to know. Um, but there's, but there's very, very little in the way of um, support for people. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I do think what, you know, actually, what you're doing is very important, because I think the more that people can see themselves in other people's experiences and feel that this conversation is normalized and feel that their experiences are validated. And then hopefully, ideally, the more that the psychological community, like the mental health community, like figures out this is a unique experience and we can support people going through it, like the better, because this is an army of Americans going through this right now, millions of Americans. Yes. And so, you know, we can't like, we can't talk about it too much. Um, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just a really important experience and, 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 you know, a lot of things like, like you were saying, like in some ways this is new, you know, in some ways this is old. There's, there's always been, um, cases where, you know, we as a society or as individuals kind of grappled with questions like nature versus nurture, right. Mm -hmm. Or, um, what is, you know, like I, I write in the book, like this question of like, what is a foster father goes back to like some writings from like ancient, I think it was ancient Rome. Um, yeah and, they're, yeah, and they're kind of wrestling, you know, the taking foster father. Care of the, yeah, taking care of the wounds of the son. Yeah, the exactly. Son. Yeah. And so, like, we've always wrestled with these questions, right? Like, what is family? What is ethnicity? You know, what if? You know, what if? Who would I have been? Et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, the difference is that now it's happening en masse to lots and lots of people who didn't know they were ever asking the question, who am I? They just right. didn't know. They blithely went into it because they got it as a gift for Christmas, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and that's, mm-hmm. a different, that's a different scenario when you enter into something because you think of it as a form of entertainment and then you get this outcome. That's like a really big deal. So now all of a sudden, as a kind of a culture, now we're engaging on all these questions that previously, you know, we talked about we're interested in, um, but maybe not to such a degree. And the reason I think it's important we all talk about it, and I think it's important we all talk about it, even if you've never even taken a DNA test, is because these are essential human questions we've always wondered about. What makes a father, you know? Mm -hmm. And can you, and like, can you, uh, you know, can you at this sort of strange moment in time with all the technology that um, that exists and has made it possible for us to know the truth about our genetic origins, what does it mean to find room in your heart for two fathers? Can we, mm-hmm. can we find language for that, for, the, for those cases where that's the appropriate response on the part of the person who's the product of an NPE? Like, can we find language to support people in acknowledging that they have two, that they have two fathers, right? A father of biology and a father of love. Right. So much about language. Yeah. Um, this whole experience um, or phenomenon has um, brought up for me just because there are there are like um, there's almost like not not we don't have the language for it. We so don't. it's also part of the stumbling around, um, among other things, is also trying to find the words for that. Right. Like, what is it to have um, to have two fathers and what is this crisis called? And we all keep kind of going around kind it's kind of about it's kind of existential and it's kind of identity but it's also genetic mm-hmm. like it, you know we don't really have um that's just a part a part of the scrambling yeah um, yeah, yeah that's so. such a good point right it is it's existential existential and psychological and genetic mm-hmm. and <laughs> right so like there might be a german word for that there's probably a, a very long german compound word for it no no doubt Uh, but we don't have that word. Um, and, uh, so, okay. So, uh, here's a question I probably, that everybody asks you, um, have you taken a mail-in DNA kit test? Yeah, I have. I have. I've taken three of them. Um, and yeah. And you might say like, why take three of them? But if, but if, you know, you're steeped in this world, you know, that the different databases give you different you know, relatives, because you're only going to match to the folks in a particular company's database, right? There's a, the databases right. don't talk to each other. Uh, and so if you're doing family history research, you might want to cast a wide net. And then, of course, I was very interested in discovering how the ethnicity estimates would vary from company company to company, because uh-huh. while, the, while the relative predictions are very robust and reliable, uh, the ethnicity predictions are sort of an evolving science, and they're imperfect, mm-hmm. and particularly on the margins, uh, they can they can have room for improvement, let's say. Mm-hmm. So I was very interested in um, seeing how the results would differ. Um, so my first test was um, my my dad gave me a test in late 2016. It was a holiday gift, as so many people get. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you know, the gift for the person in your life already has everything. Um, <laughs> and to some extent, it was vetted for me because my dad and my mom and my brother at that point, I believe, were all already tested. So if uh-huh. there were any surprises, it, it was not going to come up for me, right? Well, probably. I mean, you know, it, it certainly could have been. But, um, but, you know, to some extent it was vetted. Um, although if I had 
found that I was an NPE, obviously, you know, that, that could have happened, but it didn't happen. Um, so I did, um, I did take that test and then I went on and as I was reporting for the book, I took more tests (laughs) and I, I didn't didn't find any significant surprises. What I, what I had, Mm -hmm. what we had in our family was just kind of like this broadening of understanding, um, of finding relatives who we would not have found if not for the DNA. So like on my dad's side, we were able to find through DNA, his second cousin who lives in Sweden, um, who traces back to my dad's, um, you know, my dad's grandmother came over from Sweden in the 1890s. And so we are related through um, her father to my dad's second cousin. And we were able to travel to Sweden and meet her. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were able to see because, um, her daughter was a genealogist and had been in the database and had hooked us up and was like very keen on helping us. She was able to organize um, somebody who was local who took us to Southern Sweden and showed us my grandmother's um, school, her church, the foundations of her farmhouse. We even were able to touch a piece of furniture that um, had belonged to my grandmother's family. And, and again, she had come over at age 16 in the 1890s. So what right. that drove home to me was like this incredible immediacy of the past. Um, right. And the fact that DNA had found this for us because the records would not have, um, because there was basically a break in the line. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the ability to meet our cousins and like go there and, and feel like, oh, 1890 wasn't actually that long ago. That mm-hmm. to me was kind of a profound experience. And um, I think that whether you're discovering like something about your family history that's a little bit more distant to you in terms of, you know, your identity, or you're discovering something about your immediate family that's more like, you know, kind of dislocating um, and surprising. The central lesson here is that the past is not over. The past informs mm-hmm. who we are. And, and we have to talk about it. We have to reconcile with it. Right? We have to look at it. And you see that happening on a broader scale now, um, you know, kind of nationally, I think, in the conversations that we're having about race and particularly mm-hmm. like how concepts of race came to be in this country and how, um, you know, when you look at the genetics of the African-American population and how their European ancestry got there primarily through um, white men and, um, mm-hmm. you know, rape of black enslaved women. And you also see it, um, and that's been studied by 23andMe, and you also see it um, the other way. You see populations of white Americans who think of themselves as um, as just simply white walking around with small percentages of um, sub-Saharan African ancestry that not that long ago would have made them be considered black under the one drop rule. <laughs> And, and, and broadly, we are having now conversations about race and how we construct it and how we think about it in this country as a result, in part, of some of the research that's coming out of the recreational DNA industry. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that, that was also a section that I, um, I have a million post-its uh, in <laughs> because, because that same thing, it's sort of um, like we don't even touch on it about like there aren't even quite the right words for this exploration mm-hmm. um because it's it can be so sensitive and so delicate to use the word ethnicity and race mm-hmm. yeah um and we there's a, such a dark history um when it comes to eugenics and right genocides and um and uh, you know separating or identifying people um and so you talk about that. And I felt like when I was reading that chapter that, that, um, 
these are things that because like I guess I didn't realize until reading your book that um, I don't talk about this stuff very much out loud with people like it's not mm. conversation I mean I do for my podcast but conversationally um, it doesn't just co- it doesn't just come up mm-hmm. um, so so normally and and these were the things that I thought like oh yes like I have thought about this and I've wondered about this and I've been waiting for someone to sort of like wave a flag and say like wait 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 um, what's going on here? And, um, there aren't, there aren't conclusions, but it's just like sort of an exploration and a talk about like, oh, well, this guy, this man tried to write about it and he got in really big trouble. And then this person, um, thinks we should do it this way. It's just really interesting to me. Um, because I've been, I've been wondering and waiting for that. And, um, it's interesting that you brought up the, the ethnicity division and, um, but, but the but the connection to our past, like I what you yeah. just described as your experience of going back to Sweden, like that's what people are hoping for, I think, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. like you got to have like exactly what. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of like fun experience that you might see in an ad. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, uh, 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 and with that said, I think sometimes the ads are a little flattening of the experience, right? Like I traded in my later hosen for a kilt, like as if it were that mm-hmm. easy to turn from right. one ethnicity to another. Um, but yeah, I think I think the challenge that we have in talking about these recreational DNA tests and the ethnicity charts we get is is in some ways a problem of language. And it's also a problem of understanding and genetic literacy in this country because mm-hmm. what is ethnicity, right? Even the term ethnicity estimate is a bit problematic because ethnicity is in many ways experience. It's how you were raised. Mm-hmm. What we're really talking about when you get these pie charts is is genetic ancestry or biogeographical uh, ancestry, uh, biogeographical genetic ancestry, I think is the term or I'm probably muddling it, but it's like you know, it's like, where exactly were your people living 500 to 1,000 years ago? Not not what were the traditions and values that you were raised with and, you know, how you see yourself. Um, right. So so that, that sort of piece of it is kind of tricky. And then, you know, the issue with race, which is, you know, really a social construct. And yet when you see the way that a lot of people engage with understanding around genetic difference along race and ethnicity lines is through these tests. And when you get a pie chart that has little slices of pie and says you're this and this and this, it can, you know, have the effect of kind of promoting a sense of difference or a sense that you can identify difference in the genes and that we are very different from one another and kind of like reinforcing sense of difference. That it makes, that it's important. Yeah. That it makes a difference or that it's important or. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, and that these are solid lines, right? Like you can Mm -hmm. see it in the genes suggest there's real, real difference. And that's a problem Mm -hmm. if we are kind of reinforcing this and there's been some study to see, and I think the jury's still out. And I talk about uh, some of the, you know, sociologists and others who have been looking to see like, when you test, does that reinforce a sense of race or does it lessen? Because you see the diversity with, we see the diversity within ourselves and we uh, recognize our commonalities, like which way does it go? Um, and that's like one of the things that's you right. know, being studied right now. Um, but there's also, right. you know, you know, there's such a history of um, persecuting and sterilizing and killing people mm-hmm. for, for, you know, for the, for their difference as, you know, their, their differences as understood by what was previously a very like wrongheaded pseudoscientific understanding of genes. 
and, and, and inheritance and genetics, right? Um, that it is understandable that we need like to be cautious, right. And to be careful in our language and to think about like being knowledgeable about the history of eugenics and how much, you know, that was used to justify, um, people being hurt and, um, you know, put to death, uh, because of what was understood to be, you know, their, their, their genetic difference, that this is something we really need to, to grapple with. Yeah. And I don't think, um, yeah, they can't be separated. I think we can't, um, I mean, the, the cultural, the cultural social construct of race mm-hmm. can't, can't be, um, it's, I mean, as I guess I'm just imagining it sort of like the chicken or the egg, um, the, it's just, it, you just can't like, I think, I think there are people that would like them to be two separate conversations mm. and, um, and I, and I, I don't think they can be, um, I mean, I think, I mean, uh, yeah, right. It's it's, if you're talking about race as a genetic reality versus, you know, which, you know, there's so much more that we have in common than, 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 than difference, but race as a cultural reality. Hell yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. So those are, those are tricky conversations Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, um, I was, but I was, um, not, not that I, um, I didn't necessarily go into the book with, with expectations, but I was very sort of impressed that, that you, um, that you went there. Um, you really, you really touch on so many different aspects of this, um, of this phenomenon. And, um, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, are you doing anything now with the, um, with the, well, you're, I mean, your book just came out in the middle of a pandemic, but um, are you doing anything now with, with the, within the um, genetic testing or NPE? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been, you know, definitely like getting emails, talking to people. I've been doing, um, you know, some events, um, you know, like this or, you know, interviews. Um, and, and I don't know if I'm going to, like, I don't know, like, what happens next. I, I write an occasional column for Psychology Today where I talk about some of these things and, like, I occasionally will write, like, op-eds and things like that. But I don't know, you know, whether I'm, like, what I'm doing next, whether I'm writing a book, what topic. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right now I'm, like, good with what what's on my plate, which is right. a lot um, and a kind of a weirdly short day with, you know, kids distance learning and um, Mm -hmm. home and all that kind of stuff. Right. As I'm sure you are familiar with. (laughs) Yeah. Very familiar. Yeah. No, 2020 has uh, plenty for you. Yes. No question about it. (laughs) Um, No pressure from me to (laughs) be coming up with more projects. Um, Just getting through. Yeah. Getting through the days is a project. Getting through is a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do you feel like there's anything that um, people ask you in these interviews that, or that you want to talk about that I haven't touched on. Oh, that's a good about question. your about your yeah. experience writing it, or or anything, anything at all. Yeah. Um, let me think about that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's there's one thing that I I kind of find interesting, um, which is you know sort of this this central narrative of of Alice. Um, mm-hmm, which is so good. And I actually last night started to get anxious. Um, yeah. I mean, like I, sh- I struggle with, with like whodunits and general, you know, yeah. who suspense. And I started to like, like skim through where I was like, yeah. okay, then what? And then I'm like, okay, what happens? Like, what is the, the closer and closer you get to it? I just, yeah, started to, I know. I, I know. I totally do that too. And I, 
when I'm watching movies, if they're just too much for me, I'll like look up the plot. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. Um, I've been so the, Alice, like, the Alice is. Yeah, I've been known to like jump up and down on a couch, like <laughs> right at that like scene, and yeah, at the very end, right before yeah, the the, the who done it. Um, yeah, so I mean, I you know what interests me about Alice's story, which is like the central narrative of the book, and then you know the the, the other stories from people that I interviewed over the, the last few years, like kind of come you know uh, kind of branch off from her story. What interests me about her story is that it is kind of a um, a microcosm of all the theories in one, right? So you mm-hmm. do a DNA test and um, you get unexpected results. Okay, now you're like your own detective of your own story. Like what's the explanation? Um, Alice is like this incredibly clever, uh, you know, analytical, in, you know, technologically um, savvy woman who had recently retired when she did her DNA test and, um, you know, had was in a position to basically research the hell out of her own story. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Yeah. And so she, she's amazing. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. She's so, so mm-hmm. smart. And she goes through every theory in this just unbelievably kind of um, methodical fashion, like a scientist, like yeah. Alice, the scientist of uh, investigating her own genes. Um, yeah. And you kept saying um, in the book, I think you like, well, this was a, you don't say this was an outlandish idea, but like this, this, this was, this seems really, really wild, but Alice was determined to right. to try every single theory she was going to. Right. I mean, and everything seems wild, right? Like if you mm-hmm. have an, an NPE experience, it at first seems out, outlandish to you, right? Yes. Like yep. maybe after a little while it clicks in and you say, oh, it makes sense. But at first, Right. And so she goes through every experience because she doesn't want to eliminate any particular theory. So she investigates why her ethnicity pie chart isn't what she thought it was. And this is in 2012. This is before the databases were so big. Like mm-hmm. nowadays, if Alice had her experience, she would she wouldn't need to go through all the theories because because she'd quickly find a, a close genetic relative, like a first cousin. Uh, and then she would just like or first cousin was removed and she would just figure it out from there and it would be done very quickly. Maybe mm-hmm. weeks. Um, but this is 2012. This is like, like databases are less than, um, I don't know, less than a million. If you added them all right, together, right. now we're at 35 million, which is like insane. <laughs> and, and, and incidentally, like almost 10% of the U S population, right? Cause if the 80%, 80% of the databases are Americans. So, right. so, I mean, now it's like everyone's implicated in this this technology. You don't get to opt out if there's a family secret in your family. It's coming out one way or another. It's a question of, you know, not a matter of if, but when, right? So all those things. But this is 2012, and so we're not there yet for Alice. And so she has to investigate, you know, why her ethnicity pie chart tells her that she's, instead of almost entirely Irish-American, that she's half Ashkenazi Jewish. Is it an NPE? No. Is it a donor conception? No. Is it adoption that nobody told her about? No. Is it... Um, you know, this idea that her Irish ancestors like hid their Jewish genetic ancestry or claimed claimed Irishness when they came over to, you know, bypass discrimination. No. And she goes through all the theories. And what I love about her story, in addition to the fact that she's just so funny and smart, is that like, then like I get to branch off and tell the story like, okay, what does it look like to be an NP? What does it look like right. to find out your donor conceived and you have 20 siblings? What does it look like mm-hmm. to discover that you were adopted? No one told you. What does it look like to find out that you have 18% sub-Saharan African ancestry, but you were told you were Sicilian 
because your mom wanted to protect you from the discrimination she faced as a biracial child. And she was determined not to pass that on to you. Right. So, um, I love, I love, I just love the way Alice's story unfolds because I think Mm -hmm. it contains so many stories in it. And I just think, you know, the first time I heard her story, I thought, well, this, this can't be true. You know, I'm going to report this out (laughs) and, you know, it's going to turn out to be so much less interesting and compelling, but it was so much more. (laughs) So much more. Yeah. She's amazing. You really, yeah. it was a good get. It was a good get. Yeah, she's great. She's <laughs> yeah, it was really, yeah, that's a really great through line. Um, well, I, I can't recommend this book enough, but, and I, but I also just, I just can't thank you enough for giving me some time to oh, talk about it. You. And, um, and, and I sort of wish, I wish, I wish we had more time in the, in like a grander scale <laughs> of the grander yeah, like scheme of things. Um, just to, just to sit and talk about all this stuff, just cause it's so, it's not rare, but it's still, unique to find someone that understands all these different elements. Um, and so it, it just feels like we probably could talk, we could probably talk all day. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think it's so great that you're having all these, I think your podcast is really important and really fascinating. And you're having these conversations with different people in different sectors of their experience, right? Like you've got, you know, you've got the individuals to whom this is happening and you've got people who are, maybe have experienced it, but also have a professional background that they can shed light on it like you. Um, And I just think that that's, I think the more we talk about this, the better. So I'm very excited to have had the chance to talk to you. I think it's really Oh, it's just so fun. Um, Yeah. I just think we have to, we have to keep talking about it. I can't, I can't quite imagine like what it would be like if this was all normalized, but I, that's like, Hmm. that's the vision. That's the intention. Right. And I'm trying to think of what we have now that used to not be normalized and, um, yeah, I'll have to think of some kind of social construct that we're all used to now um, that used used to not exist. And, yeah. and it could even just be divorce. It <laughs> like divorce. could even be divorce. Yeah. Like divorce is like, very taboo, you know. Exactly. Or, yeah. Or talking sex. about certain diseases or same-sex mm-hmm, marriage mm-hmm. or, um, yeah. or, or uh, you know, donor conception. That was right. something that people didn't tell their children about and now they and now they generally do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and adoption. Yeah, yeah and adoption things. too. Yeah. Um, but so it is, I, I really am sure it's it's possible, and I think it will. I think it will be for our benefit. Um, but it's because yeah, and your book is so great because it's so accessible for the NPE and for those um, who are just interested and or ought to learn um, more about uh, more about this culturally, um, soci- sociologically, um, mm-hmm. scientifically. All of it. It's Thank just you. It, you. You really like. Um, you really come at it from, from all angles and it's very accessible. I love it. Uh, so thank you. Thank, thank you for writing you. this book. Go on with your uh, distance learning day. All and, right. You um, too. Yeah. And we'll be in touch, of course, when this episode is going to be on. It won't be very long because I'm kind of trying to um, ha- hammer them all out, so to oh, speak. Great. Um, and so, but I'll be in touch with you. And um, yeah, thank you again. Thank you, Eve. I really enjoyed this. Right. Oh, Let's me, you, uh, me too. <laughs> Nick, I'm so, sorry. I'm such a dork. Okay. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Libby Copeland, author of The Lost Family, writer and reporter for The Washington Post. If you want to know more about her and her writing, head over to LibbyCopeland.com. See what she's all about her book, speaking engagements, and other projects that she's working on. That was so fun to get to talk with her. One thing I want to say before this episode is over about the retreat is that um, 
I meant to say it before and I forgot. Guys, I'm real tired. I've had my coffee, but it's a rough one. Um, so what I wanted to say is that there were many, many precautions taken for this group um, to be together during this time of COVID-19. I don't want anyone to think that we were being careless. Um, we had just a few of the things that were going on is we had to arrive with negative test results. We had to wear masks. There was hand sanitizer and Lysol wipes everywhere. People did a really good job of distancing and communicating about comfort levels. So I know that not everyone will be thrilled to hear that we got together, but I wanted you to know that they were doing as much as possible to keep things safe and clean among us. So this episode um, is coming out October 30th, which means it's Halloween tomorrow. We have a little toddler alien Margot um, tumbling around, and we have a men in black agent, Agent Dallas, or Agent D at our house. Um, I will post pictures. What are you going to be for Halloween? Is anyone going to be a weird DNA test? <laughs> um, I don't know what that would be, but if you are, would you please send me a picture? In our family, um, we aren't going to go trick-or-treating, but we are working on creating some kind of like fun, fun night for our little family, and Dallas has this idea that maybe he will trick-or-treat inside the house, and I will be on the other side of the door to hand out some candy, so we'll see how that's going to work, but he always comes up with um, games, and I'm, I'm pretty impressed with his adaptability to the situation, so I'm excited. I'll send pictures, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think it's going to be fun. So also, by the next episode, Halloween will have happened, and also the election. So that might be scarier for you than any ghosts or goblins, no matter where you stand um, on any issue here in America. So stay tuned for the results, I guess. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye, everyone. Happy Halloween. May the best candidate win. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Kaylin Egan and Eve Sturgis. Eve is a licensed therapist in the state of California, but conversations on this podcast are not therapy sessions. This podcast is edited by Stephanie Delon-Zick, the logo design is by Ivy McNally, and the music is used with permission by Goodbye the Band. Hi, I'm Michelle Veray. And I'm Kimberly Trung, and we are the host of Crush Fictionally, a podcast all about your favorite fictional characters from movies, TV shows, and more. Each episode, we pick a theme, curate a list of characters that we love, why we love them, and some fun facts about the people who created them. So if you've ever felt a true connection with a fictional character, tune in to Crush Fictionally on Campfire Media or wherever you find your podcast. Campfire.